0: Okay, so we're at the very end here. Isaiah, we'll talk about uh, Isaiah actually was alive here during the time of uh, Isaiah. okay, and down all the way here to the uh, splitting of the kingdoms, I'm sorry, not the splitting of the kingdoms, but the loss of the 10 northern tribes taken into Assyrian captivity, and he gave a message to uh, both kingdoms, Israel and Judah. We'll spend a little bit of time talking about Revelation today. Dr. Tonstad, uh, I've enjoyed his class so much here for the last three years on the book of Revelation. And he has three keys for understanding the book of Revelation. And since we're in the Old Testament, this is a good time uh, to bring this up. One of them, which has been uh, so helpful to me, is to take the Old Testament references um, very seriously. And what that means is, uh, Revelation is entirely made up of uh, the Old Testament, essentially. And so when you read something in Revelation... And you say, okay, well, yeah, there it is in Isaiah. Um, that The real way to, to approach that is to take in the whole context of what does this mean in the Old Testament at that time. And then we apply that to Revelation. That will open up uh, many windows of understanding uh, that are quite helpful. So, and we're going to give several illustrations of that um, here today. Another is, Dr. Tonsted always likes to, to say, become a rereader. Okay, you have to read and reread the book of Revelation. I'm going to give an illustration for that later. And uh, this is one that many would not accept, okay? But I'll just make the claim now, and we'll try to talk more about this, and that is that there's more than one acting subject in the book of Revelation. Most paradigms for understanding Revelation have only one acting subject, and that is God. God does everything in the trumpet sequence. It's the uh, destructive uh, judgments uh, from God, and um, I, I hope to, here over the next few weeks, try to strengthen this claim that there is more than one acting subject in the book of Revelation. For example, here we have in Isaiah 2, something that probably many of you recognize is coming from a Revelation, that people will hide in caves in the rocky hills or dig holes in the ground to try to escape from the Lord's anger and to hide from his power and glory when he comes to shake the earth. When that day comes, they will throw away the gold and silver idols they have made and abandon them to the moles and the bats. When the Lord comes to shake the earth, people will hide in holes and caves and so on. And um, most of you probably recognize that's, that's a description in Revelation. And this is also repeated in Hosea. But, but we need to go back. What did this mean in this time? Okay, now how can we apply that uh, to the book of Revelation? But what I'm going to spend most of our time here is on uh, this incredible description. Isaiah encountered God in all of his glory. And uh, so we're going to spend some time in this passage here in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on his throne, high and exalted, and his robe filled the whole temple. Around him flaming creatures were standing, each of which had six wings. Each creature covered its face with two wings and its body with two and used the other two for flying. They were calling out to each other, Holy, 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 the Lord Almighty is holy. His glory fills the world. And I want to um, talk about several uh, aspects of this passage. And maybe we'll just uh, start by the end here. His glory fills the world. Now, who do you imagine, just right off the top of your head, which which member of the Godhead is being described here? Is this the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? I think I can kind of intuitively hear God in all of his glory on the throne. I think the Father would probably uh, immediately um, come to mind. Okay, but let's just talk about this. Uh, What does this mean This glory fills the world. Whose glory fills the world? Okay, and of course, uh, when the sun uh, came into planet earth, the description here is in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. The word was God. And in John 1, this description here of why he came. The word became a human being and full of grace and truth lived among us. We saw his glory. And again, that was not a brightness physical brightness, we saw his glory. The glory which he received as the father's only son. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God. That's really a good translation. The unique one who is himself God is near to the father's heart. He has revealed God to us. So the description of the the mission here of Jesus came to reveal God. And we associate that with his glory. This is a glory, uh, this is a character uh, manifestation. Not a, Jesus didn't come to reveal, hey, God is bright and he's powerful. He came to reveal something uh, about his character. And a verse we've read so many times here, of course, the night before Jesus died, where he said, this is eternal life, okay, not living forever. Okay, That's assumed, but eternal life means to know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And then Jesus said, I've shown your glory on earth. Okay, and again, not a, not a physical brightness. I've shown your glory i finished the work you gave me to do. And then we'll go on to say, I made your name known. Remember, name means more than just the, the identification, the person's name. Okay, in the biblical sense, name means uh, character. describes the, the person. So this was the glory that Jesus came to reveal. So I think we could make a case here that, uh, that this glory that fills the world that ultimately that that glory was revealed through the sun but let's talk about two other aspects here that we have these six winged creatures and they're singing holy 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 the lord almighty is holy and clearly this this is a direct uh, parallel with revelation okay revelation which uh, initially we have these seven churches and then there's an open door and john had another vision saw an open door in heaven And the voice that sounded like a trumpet, which I had heard speaking to me before said, come up here. And there in heaven was a throne with someone sitting on it. Very similar to Isaiah. His face gleamed like such precious stones as Jasper, carnelian, and all around the throne there was a rainbow, the color of an emerald. And the description of the creatures here, each one of the four living creatures had six wings and they were covered with eyes inside and out. And day and night, just like Isaiah, they never stop singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Same thing from Isaiah, who is, who, uh, who was, who is, and who is to come. Now, let's just read on here in Revelation. What is, what is being described here? I think this is really significant. The four living creatures sing songs of glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. When they do so, the 24 elders fall down before the one who sits on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. They throw their crowns down in front of the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were given existence and life. Now, what follows here, I mean, just imagine you've never read this before, and it it just seems rather uh, surprising what happens. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. And there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? Now, just imagine you're there, and we just read, God is sitting on the throne. He's holding the scroll. And does it seem rather unusual to have an angel ask, who is worthy to open the scroll? I mean, wouldn't you wanna say, well, I mean, God is worthy. He's holding the scroll, just, you know? God is worthy. Have God open the scroll. Okay, this almost uh, seems a, a little embarrassing here. Who is worthy? But then it gets even more surprising here. No one in heaven, and God's holding the scroll, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it as God sits there holding the scroll. No one is worthy. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. And he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the the throne. And now they sang a new song. And again, how literally do we want to take all of this? Now, are they just moving on to a different hymn in heaven? Okay, is there something very significant about this? Okay, they're singing one song. Now, something happened here. Now, they're singing a new song. What does that mean? You are worthy to take the scroll and break open its seals, for you were killed, and by your sacrificial death, you bought for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. Again, I looked, and I heard angels, thousands and millions of them, They stood around the throne, the four living creatures and the elders, and sang in a loud voice, the lamb who was killed is worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, and strength, honor, glory, and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, in the world below, and in the sea, all living beings in the universe. And they were singing to him who sits on the throne, and to the lamb be praised, and honor, glory, and might forever and ever. So what is the meaning here? Um well here's here is a, a suggestion that um, how I would like to try to understand this initially remember we saw God on his throne he 's holding the scroll he 's receiving praise, holy 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 okay and he 's surrounded by the four living creatures the twenty four elders but no no one is worthy to open the scroll and then suddenly in the the way that uh, this uh, really probably the best translation, it's the violently slaughtered lamb. The violently slaughtered lamb on the throne, he is worthy. And then after that, we have a new song and now we have thousands and millions, every creature, heaven, earth, and the world below, everyone now is praising God. I think this is, uh, rather than getting caught up on, well, what are the four living creatures? What are the 24 elders? Who are they? I think perhaps what is being described here is this amplification of praise that we go from 4 and 24 around the throne praising God, but then because of what happened in the person of Jesus Christ and the new song I would, I would propose here, this is a new understanding. I mean, who could have understood uh, God fully? I mean, we, we never can, of course, but the manifestation of God becoming a human doing what he did, uh, humbly laying down his life. I mean, this surely this has to stimulate a new song, uh, new thoughts, a new paradigm about God entirely. And so we go from four and 24, and now we have thousands, millions in the entire universe praising God. I think it's very significant here, the the way that uh, this whole um, thing is structured Um, in a way such that we see uh, Jesus really receiving all of the praise and the glory and honor, but of course, ultimately, that comes right back to God. And if I could just make another uh, point here in this passage here, the title for the passage in Isaiah, the Lord Almighty, uh, what does that refer to? Uh, this same title is used seven times in the book of Revelation. And uh, just here in the first chapter, Uh, Again, intuitively, we probably think this is referring to the Father. But here, this passage in Revelation 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the book of Revelation opens by telling us, you know, not, uh, hey, this is a very mysterious book that no one could possibly understand, but it's a revelation, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first to be raised from death, who is also the ruler of the kings of the world. He loves us. And it goes on. Look, he's coming in the clouds, okay, still Jesus. Everyone will see him, including those who pierced him. All peoples on earth will mourn over him. And then who is this talking? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord Almighty. Who is the Alpha and the Omega? It's not entirely clear from this passage in Revelation 1. But uh, this phrase here, again, is mentioned seven times. And, uh, you know, the number seven, of course, is very significant here, but let's just try to wrap our minds around this, that the first two times it's mentioned at the end of the prologue of Revelation, and then it's mentioned again at the beginning of the vision, and then two times at the very end of the book. So what we just read here, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Okay, God is the Alpha and the Omega. Okay, if we were to read on, another title used here, very, very similar for Christ, is I am the first and the last. Then we get to the end of the book. The end of the vision, and we have again God, who is the, now described as both the Alpha and the Omega, and the beginning and the end, and the book ends here uh, in this the kind of chiastic structure here, with now Christ, the only time given all three titles in the end of Revelation. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. And uh, again, I think this is just very, very carefully structured. And I think what this is trying to direct our attention to is that we equate Jesus with God. Not too separate and distinct, but absolutely uh, it is to elevate. Uh, When we say Revelation has a very high Christology, well, look at that. The one who has all three titles at the end, Alpha and Omega, first and the last, beginning and the end, it's Christ. So here's the verse. Listen, says Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. Okay, that's significant. Okay, so we we talked about these here in Revelation here, the the seven times these titles are used. And I mentioned that the Lord God Almighty is mentioned seven times, this number of completeness. Not to make a big deal out of this, but is this just a happen chance here that the phrase the one who sits on the throne mentioned seven times. Christ is mentioned seven times in Revelation. God and the Lamb is mentioned seven times in Revelation. And uh, just an interesting side point, and if you didn't agree with this, I wouldn't have my feelings hurt here, but four is the, the number of the world, you know, the four corners, four divisions of the world. And just maybe an interesting thought, possibility. The lamb here is mentioned 28 times in Revelation. Isn't that kind of interesting? And some have suggested here, well, we have uh, maybe seven, the seven times four is 28, that this perhaps could represent the worldwide scope of the victory of the Lamb. Okay, just an interesting thought. But the the numbers here in Revelation have a theological um, significance. Now, let me just make um, another observation about Revelation. You know, we have the seven churches, and then the rest of the book is seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And we are going to come back to Isaiah here, but let me just talk about this a little bit. And traditionally, these have been read as kind of chronologically. Well, we go through the seven seals, then we move on in time to the seven trumpets, and then finally we move on in time to the seven bowls. Okay, but let me just read a passage, and you tell me, is this end time, uh, something towards the end, or something towards the beginning? There was a violent earthquake, and the sun became black like coarse black cloth, and the moon turned completely red like blood. The stars fell down to the earth like unripe figs falling from the tree when a strong wind shakes it. The sky disappeared like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the rulers and the military chiefs, the rich and the powerful, and all other people, slave and free, hid themselves in caves. That's from Isaiah. And under rocks on the mountains... They called out to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the eyes of the one who sits on the throne and from the anger of the lamb. The terrible day of their anger is here and who can stand up against it? Now, is this, um, is this more of a, do you associate this with an end time um, kind of imagery or is this something that uh, perhaps happened a long time ago? Well, most of that, I mean, this has some echoes of uh, what we might consider as a second coming but this is the end of the seal sequence here in revelation 6. okay and at the end of the seals we have god wiping every tear from their eyes do you associate that with something that is perhaps even future okay that's the very end of the book of revelation god wipes tears from every eyes but we also see this in the end of the seal sequence okay and so what i'm suggesting here and uh i think dr tonstad again is made such a, a good case for this is that the seals the trumpets and the bowls are rather looking at they're certainly end-oriented okay but they're looking at perhaps the same thing from different angles or perspective as we go through each of these we're getting a, a different view of uh, human reality let me give one other example of this and this is uh, i mean undeniably we have to associate these these three things in the seventh seal It ends with a scene at the golden altar of incense. And there are rumblings, peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Okay, the seventh trumpet ends with a scene at the covenant box. So that would go with the golden altar. And with, same thing, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, heavy hail this time. Okay, but wouldn't we associate that with what we see here at the end of the seventh seal? And the seventh plague ends with a loud voice from the throne in the temple. Again, the throne in the temple here, the golden altar of incense, the covenant box, this time the throne in the temple. And with, same thing, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a terrible earthquake. They all seem to end at the same point. Okay, again, suggesting that we are, we are really looking at perhaps uh, same things, overlapping imagery, but from different uh, perspectives. Let me give you an illustration from a movie. I don't know if any of you have seen this movie, The Vantage Point. It wasn't a great movie, but um, it, it told about the, the assassination of a U.S. president. And you, you kept watching his assassination, but it was from different perspectives. Okay, you saw the perspective of a reporter, and then you go back in time. And then you get the perspective of someone else who was there. And finally, when you get through all of the different um, you know, views of this, All of a sudden, a more uh, well-rounded picture of what actually happened uh, became clear. You know, we're used to reading things just linearly, uh, linearly from A to Z, but perhaps the book of Revelation should be considered more along the lines of a symphony. You have a Beethoven symphony or Mozart or something like that. You have a theme, and the theme keeps being repeated. And as it's repeated, you get a new uh, variation on the theme. You get something additional that is that is added, and yes, there is an end. It's it's end uh, oriented, okay. But I think the revela- revelation could perhaps be seen more along those lines. Okay, in Isaiah and in Revelation, this is why we're talking about um, Revelation now. Isaiah uh, has an incredible contrast, I think, between uh, God and Isaiah also, I believe, saw Satan. And certainly in the book of Revelation, we have this dramatic contrast here between um, God and the adversary. And so the passage here is uh, in Isaiah 14, which talks initially about this, uh, the king of Babylon. But I think it becomes pretty clear we're actually not talking about the king of Babylon here as we read on. King of Babylon, bright morning star, you have fallen from heaven. In the past, you conquered nations, but now you have been thrown to the ground." And so some translations here have a bright morning star and a version like the New King James would uh, use the word Lucifer. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Okay, so how do we we get Lucifer out of this? And not to spend a long time on this here, but the Hebrew word Halel means shining one or brilliant one, okay, which is usually applied to Venus you know, which you can see uh, during the daylight. And when we have the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint, okay, this is rendered as heophosphorus, morning star, bringer of the dawn. And when uh, Jerome came to do his translation um, of the Bible, uh, he translate, translated this uh, as uh, Lucifer. Okay, so that's how we get Lucifer in, um, as the bright morning star in Isaiah 14. So this whole passage here is a very carefully constructed um, poem. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend. And there's the the aspirations here. It's just interesting how many times I is mentioned. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount to the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. But instead, you have been brought down to the deepest part of the world of the dead." So here in this passage, there really seems to fall twice. He falls from heaven. And then in the end here, he falls to Sheol, the abyss. And this very compact passage in Isaiah is expanded on in Revelation. Again, to to emphasize our need to go back and forth here from uh, Revelation to the Old Testament. We've read this many times here in this Bible study. In Revelation 12, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon who fought back with his angels, but the dragon was defeated. He and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. The huge dragon was thrown out. That ancient serpent, again, No way we're going to miss the identity here. The ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, that deceived the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth and all his angels with him. So we have this initial falling from heaven to earth in Revelation, okay? But the Revelation also describes the fall into the abyss. And for that, we need to go to Revelation 20, where we see the angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the abyss and a heavy chain, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent. Again, not going to miss the identity, the devil or Satan. Chained him up for a thousand years, and the angel threw him into the abyss. So uh, Revelation very much expands on this passage in Isaiah 14 of the fall from heaven and the fall um, into the abyss. And um, the reason for me this is uh, so important is, um, you know, Satan is largely a, a neglected figure in current um, theology. You know, he's not really that uh, important, it seems like. Um, and uh, that, I think we really miss out. We wanna understand uh, the problem of human suffering. I think we, we need to, uh, I think I've used this illustration before, but it, it's like describing the Holocaust and we, we deny the existence of Hitler. No, it doesn't mean that Hitler actually was the one who turned the valves on the gas chamber, but what we see in the Holocaust, that's the nature of Hitler's kingdom, okay? And I think what we see on planet Earth, this is the nature of the satanic uh, kingdom. And just read on here the passage in Isaiah 14, after the fall into the abyss. Everyone there will stare at you and ask, can this be the one who shook the earth and made the kingdoms of the world tremble? Is this the one who destroyed the world? Hey, who has destroyed the world? Is this the one who has destroyed the world and made it into a wasteland? Is this the king who demolished the world's greatest cities and had no mercy on his prisoners? Again, it's a pretty telling description and it fits with uh, New Testament theology. <laughs> I mean, Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. Um, in the writings of Paul, he referred to Satan as the God of this age, the ruler of the kingdoms of the air. And John referred to Satan in this way, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Okay, so uh, we we have this uh, very pervasive description that is not much of it in the Old Testament, admittedly, but it becomes, I think, very prevalent in the New Testament and especially in Revelation. <clears throat> so let's, let's come back to this here and this contrast between two kingdoms. And we notice that uh, the aspirations in Isaiah 14 is to climb higher and higher and higher. Okay? I will ascend, I will become like the most high. And it's kind of like we have you know, Satan on the up escalator and at the same time, what, what is God doing? He would seem to be on the down escalator. I mean, God became a human, he was dead in a tomb. They're going different directions, okay? Kind of counterintuitive that this is the way God would win this conflict. And I want to uh, just conclude by talking about something that happens here at the end of the seal sequence, okay, that, uh, that we can only understand this from the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> okay, a verse that is, has puzzled many. Silence in heaven. When the Lamb broke open the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, how do you understand that? Silence in heaven for 30 minutes. Okay, what in the world is that referring to? Well... Um, Again, where do we find that in the Old Testament? Uh, What is the reference for that? And I think in the context here of the violently slaughtered lamb in Revelation, opening the seals, uh, this brings us back to Isaiah. So I want to read this passage here that uh, goes from Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53. Just watch my servant blossom, exalted, tall, head and shoulders above the crowd. But he didn't begin that way. At first, everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured past recognition. Nations all over the world will be in awe, taken aback. Kings shocked into silence when they see him. For what was unheard of, they'll see with their own eyes. What was unthinkable, they'll have right before them. Okay, and we have in another translations that kings will be speechless with amazement. They will see and understand something they had never known. Okay, now what will shock, kind of like a shock and awe here, what will shock kings and cause them to be speechless with amazement? They will see and understand something they had never known. And we just have to read on. Who believes what we have heard and seen? Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this? Who could have predicted it would look like this? The servant grew up before God, "'A scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. "'There was nothing attractive about him, "'nothing to cause us to take a second look. "'He was looked down on and passed over, "'a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. "'One look at him and people turned away. "'We looked down on him, thought he was scum. "'But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, "'our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. "'We thought he brought it on himself, "'that God was punishing him for his own failures.' But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong on him. He was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, He took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was let off. Did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. And the the whole passage here that begins with, they will be shocked into silence. And then the description here, who could have thought that God's saving power would look like this? Who could have predicted? I mean, if we didn't know that this was gonna happen, that God would become a baby, that God himself, the Almighty One, the Lord God Almighty, would die in this way. It's unthinkable, okay? And I think um, the, the, the seal um, sequence here, ending with this uh, kind of a celestial silence uh, the reason that we talk so much about uh, God's character and the reason for me, this has just become everything in, in terms of uh, our, our central um, key thing. I mean, if there's one thing we want to hold on to, it is God's the revelation of God's character in Jesus Christ. This is an end time kind of a thing. This is what needs to be understood. And if I could just quote uh, Dr. Tonstead. I mean, credit him for this uh, understanding of this view. This is from his book, his doctoral dissertation on Revelation. And he describes it this way. The scroll, now we're back to God holding the scroll, who's worthy to open the scroll. The scroll confronts the council with a seemingly insoluble predicament, a veritable crisis in the divine government, highlighted by the tears of the seer. Remember, John is crying by the silence of everyone else. Remember, the question is asked, who's worthy? And no one can say anything. The breaking of the seal signifies that this predicament has been fully worked out. And with the breaking of the seventh seal comes a sense of closure to the heavenly council. Only when the lamb in its slaughtered state is allowed to exert a commanding influence on the entire scene will the representative biblical imagery for the silence in heaven receive its due. The text in Isaiah is about silence the silence of shock and awe in the face of an entirely unexpected manifestation. Revelation presents an analogous situation when the heavenly council confronts a disclosure disclosure that defies expectations, but the relationship between these texts consists of more than an analogy. The startling nature of what is disclosed, causing kings to shut their mouths because of him, belongs to the vision of the Lamb that has led to the slaughter in the original Old Testament context. Because remember, it is the slaughtered lamb that uh, moves us into this entire um, seal sequence that, that should bring us back to Isaiah. Moreover, both texts describe the fate of the lamb one anticipating, that's Isaiah, and the other one after the fact, Revelation. What leads to silence in the fourth servant song in Isaiah is precisely that the servant has been violently abused. So marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals. And this reality lies behind the description of a lamb that is led to the slaughter. In the heavenly council, there is silence too. And the silence comes when the council is brought face to face with the slaughtered lamb, presented and acknowledged as the victor and revealer in the cosmic conflict. All the seals are broken, signifying that the issue confronting the heavenly council has been resolved by the lamb. Silence in this context serves as the reflective corollary of praise. And in this sense, the proposed idea of rapturous amaze is not far off from the mark. So, you know, when we consider the life of Jesus, um, I I think we want to continually, in our mind, be saying God is like that. God is like that. Every word, every action, including in the death of Jesus, that, uh, you know, Even in Isaiah, we see God on his throne, brightness, glory, chapter six, but then we read on to the suffering servant in the end of Isaiah. So we wanna consider, yes, God is all powerful, but his power is equally matched uh, by his love, by his humility, uh, his infinite uh, condescension. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for um, this incredible description of uh, your descent, hard to imagine, uh, your descent from the throne uh, as a human. Uh, thank you for the words of Jesus that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Pray for each one of us here that we would completely internalize uh, everything that you revealed about, your fa- about the Father uh, by your life and death on earth. Amen. Amen.